I want to read a couple of passages. The, uh, the book of Esther is rather complex, and we can't possibly cover the whole text in one sermon. But I want to highlight just some things, and I want to start reading in chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Let me give you a little bit of background here before I start reading. Haman is an evil person who hates Jews with a passion. And he particularly hates Mordecai because Mordecai refuses to bow down before him. And Haman then takes this hatred and expands it so that the entire empire becomes involved in getting permission to kill Jews. And I want to start reading there at chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And then turn with me to chapter 8, Esther chapter 8, a lot of activity going on here, which we'll overlook for the time being, and I want to pick it up again at verse 7, Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded, concerning the Jews, 
to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women, on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Farshandatha and Delphon and Aspatha, 
and Philatha, and Adelia, and Eridatha, and Pharmashtha, and Erisiah, and Eridai, and Vesatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand in the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in, the, in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we look at the world and see what turmoil it is in and our concern with all the many things that are happening. We are told by your word that you are in control. We ask that the message given by, not by Dr. D. Young from your word will strengthen us and confirm that above all, you are sovereign. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. I'm doing something this morning I've never done before, preaching a sermon from the book of Esther. I mentioned this past week to my golfing buddies that I was going to preach from Esther this morning, and one of them immediately piped up, but that shouldn't be in the Bible. Why are you choosing Esther? Martin Luther said the book of Esther ought to go. There's no place in Scripture for the book of Esther. This past week I was in Baker Book store and picked off a bunch of commentaries looking for commentaries on Esther and one of them struck me and said the whole book of Esther is a political game designed to make the Jews happy it's all fabricated there is no factual information to back this up it's just a political ploy for the Jews to celebrate that's fundamentally flagrantly false. The book of Esther is part of God's holy word. 
It is part of divinely inspired scripture. It's different. It's strange. There is no place anywhere in the book of Esther where there is any reference to God. God's name never appears. There is never any time for prayer. There should have been. There are multiple times where there are very serious conditions and the people should have immediately gone to prayer and said, God, please help us. We're in a terrible mess. There's none of that. There is never anywhere in the book of Esther a call for repentance, even though there are numerous gross sins being practiced by these people who are Jews, who are God's chosen people. There's never a call for repentance. God never sends one of his prophets and say, go there to the citadel, go to Susa and preach like he did to Nineveh or like he does later on to Jerusalem. No calls for repentance, no prophets preaching forgiveness. Why is it here? What can we possibly learn from the book of Esther? The Board of Reform Fellowship last spring asked me to do a study of the book, and I did it reluctantly. Once I got into it, I was amazed, and I find it to be one of the most exciting studies I think I've ever done. We need to focus in on certain things if we're going to understand the book of Esther. On your outline, I... I've given you some pointers. We'll try to follow that as we go through. The very first thing that you need to recognize and you need to see in the text is that there is a tremendous deep-seated hatred against the Jews. And you have to remember the Jews are God's chosen people. They're sent into exile because they are sinners and God is punishing them, trying to bring them to repentance. But they're here in Persia. There's a tremendous hatred against them. We saw that last May when I preached a sermon from this pulpit about David, excuse me, Daniel being put into the lion's den. That situation Throughout the early part of the Persian Empire, there was such a wave of opposition to the worship of Jehovah that King Darius issued a decree throughout the whole empire. Anybody who worships Jehovah must die. And of course, we focused in on Daniel, and they threw Daniel into the lion's den, and God turned that whole situation around and made it a victory. If you read through the first part of the book of Ezra, you're again going to see a tremendous hatred against those Jews who go back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Jeshua. They do everything they can to prevent the building of the temple. When you go to the book of Nehemiah, you see all of the neighboring peoples around there doing everything they can to stop the building of the wall. Now, when we get here into the book of Esther, we see that this wicked Haman, who I would suggest is a Hitler 
type. He is extremely brutal. He's extremely hateful of the Jews. He particularly hates Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow down. But he extends that. He goes to the king. He goes to King Ahasuerus and says, King, these people, these Jews, are, are so different. They have different laws. They have different rules. They have different societies. We have to exterminate them for your own good. And stupid King Ahasuerus says, that sounds good. Let's write an edict. Let's issue it to the whole empire, which extends all the way from India to Ethiopia into Macedonia. We'll send that edict out to the whole empire that on a given day, any Persian may kill, annihilate, destroy, and plunder any Jew that you can find. Well, by this time in history, there are some 50,000 Jews in Jerusalem who have gone there with Zerubbabel. The edict says, you go to Jerusalem and you may kill every one of those Jews that you can find. Throughout the whole empire, go ahead, you have my blessing. And you say, wait a minute, that's genocide. If that were to happen, if all those Jews would be killed, we would not have the book of Esther, the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, the book of Malachi. All of those would be off because there would be no Jews left. There would be no antecedents of Jesus Christ because the whole nation of Jews would be killed. You say, what motivates that kind of deep hatred? Next thing you have to look at is the timing. In one sense, this is a very, very strange kind of edict. The edict is issued on the 13th day of the first month of the calendar year. And the edict says, on the 13th day of the 12th month, only on that day, no other day, but on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Persian has every right to go into any place you can find a Jew and kill them and take all their property as yours. What kind of timing is this? What kind of timing is that? That is going to allow the Jews the knowledge. They're going to be informed. The edicts go out to Jerusalem. They go out throughout the whole empire. And says, on the 13th day of the month Adar, that 12th month on the calendar, every Jew is probably going to be killed. You say, how did they get those kinds of dates? Well, they cast the pearl or they rolled the dice, or sometimes we talk about the lot, casting the lot. Who controls the lot? Why do we use the lot as a way of determining? Because God controls that. God controls the date on which the edict is issued. The 13th day of the first month. 
You say, what's so significant about that? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, you will see that is the very specific day on which God told the Jews back in Egypt to celebrate the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, you have to kill that special lamb that you've had outside your house for these past four days. You have to sacrifice that lamb. God, see, is in control of the casting of the pearl. But God is also controlling the dice or the purr that Haman rolls second time. So what day are we going to carry this out? Well, 11 months from now, on the 13th day of the 12th month, is the day on which we can do this. No other day. You get one day. You go in every village, every house, kill every Jew you can find. Who controls that? God does. We know from the book of Daniel, which immediately precedes the book of Esther, that God is truly sovereign over all of the affairs of men and nations. You have to study the book of Esther with that in mind. All of the truths about the sovereignty of God expressed and explained in the book of Daniel apply equally well in the book of Esther. God is controlling every part. The timing then is strange, but it's under the control of God. And then you ask, how did the Jews react? Well, the first reaction, if you read through the book of Esther, the first reaction comes from Mordecai himself. Mordecai is the one who triggered this hostility because he refused day after day and week after week to bow before Haman. Mordecai knows that he's the one responsible for this. So what he's to do, he takes off his clothes, puts on ashes, he puts on sackcloth, and goes in front of the palace door and starts screaming. Who's inside the palace? His adopted daughter, Esther. And Esther says, What's wrong with Mordecai? Why is he, he can't dress that way. If he tries to get into the palace dressed that way, he's going to be dead. Bring him some fresh clothes. Mordecai says, that's not the problem. Let me explain why I'm screaming, why I'm crying out. Because, oh, Esther doesn't know anything about this edict. She's ignorant of it. She's in the palace, but she doesn't know. When Esther finally confronts the king and says, Haman is the guilty person. The king immediately turns against Haman, his prime minister, and has him killed and has him hanged on his own gallows. Now there's some relief. When Mordecai comes with a solution and says, King, we really would love to have those edicts revoked. And the king says, you can't do that. No law of the Medes and Persians may ever be revoked or annulled. They're cast in concrete. But you may have permission to write another edict. So Mordecai comes with the counselors and they say, all right, we're going to request an edict 
to be signed with the king's ring, allowing all of the Jews on that one day to defend themselves. Up to this point, there is no defense allowed. But Mordecai comes and says, on that one day, we have to have the right to defend ourselves. But if you read the text carefully, it says, only if you are attacked. The hostility is so deep. On that 13th day of the 12th month, you can expect all across the empire that the Persians are going to attack the Jews. On that day, any time you are attacked, you may fight back. You may get your troops lined up. You may get your swords, your spears, your arrows, whatever you need to fight back and defend yourself. It's not a matter of revenge. It's a matter of self-defense. What happens when they get to the 13th day? In the citadel, the capital city of Persia, there are 500 people killed, plus the 10 sons of Haman. This is in the citadel where the king's palace is, which means and implies that in the citadel there are so many people attacking the Jews, the Jews engage in self-defense, and they can actually fight back and kill and annihilate anybody who attacks them. What about the rest of the empire? Well, we're told in the passage we read, throughout the empire on that one day, 75,000 Persians are killed. How many Jews died? Zero. No Jews are killed. You see why some scholars say, this is all myth. That could never happen. If the Jews are simply engaged in self-defense, 75,810 of the Persians are killed and no Jews die at all. Now, take that figure a minute. If that doesn't blow your mind, put that into the United States today. Suppose we got word that yesterday in Washington, D.C., there were 500 people killed by Christians who were de defending themselves against the attack. But throughout the rest of the United States, there are 75,000 dead in one day. You're going to be like a lot of Bible scholars and say, that's not true. That can't be true. That kind of thing never happens. Uh, well, if you read through the rest of Scripture, you're going to find some other times when Sennacherib attacks Jerusalem and tries to capture King Hezekiah. He comes with an army of 185,000 soldiers. They camp all around the city of Jerusalem. And one morning, Hezekiah and his people wake up and there are 185,000 dead soldiers in their tents. Did they get a bug? Did they get a virus? 
God, in his power, killed them because they were attacking his people. God is the one who is protecting the Jews from the Persians who hate them. God is not going to let his people be wiped off the map. God is not going to allow his plans go down the drain. God comes in and is really responsible for that tremendous slaughter. But what's the reaction of the Jews? They celebrate for two days. Whoopee, we won. Let's have a feast. Bring out the wine, more wine. Let's, let's give gifts to each other. Is that a proper response? No, emphatically not. God had put those dates on their calendars to remind them about the Passover, to remind them of what happened back there in Egypt. God says, if you take that lamb and kill it and you put the blood over the doorpost, I will save all of you and I will kill the oldest person and the oldest animal in every household throughout the whole empire. Boom. Just like that. That's what happened. The Jews who were left behind in Persia, who chose not to go to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, who stayed there enjoying the culture, enjoying the Persian society, have completely forgotten about God. They have no sense of worship. They have no sense of God's power. If you put things in correct chronological sequence, you know that the book of Ezra comes right after the book of Esther. Not the way it's set up in the Bible, but the way it's chronologically developed. Esther is living during the time of Esther and Mordecai and the Feast of Purim. Esther writes his book, and the first six chapters, he deals with all the events about Zerubbabel and all the Jews going back to Palestine, and then he stops with the construction of the temple in 520, and he puts a big gap there of 58 years and starts talking about Ezra. He completely, totally ignores this part of Jewish history. He ignores all this about Esther and Mordecai and Purim. Just completely blank. You read the book of Nehemiah and the same thing happens. Nehemiah has also been living during this time. He knows all about this. He also completely ignores it. The same thing is true for Malachi. Those prophets of God, those men of God, know about this and for some reason they choose not to cover it in their books. Why? I don't know. The text is silent. But one thing I do know is that God is in control. God is sovereign. Nine years after this slaughter of the Persians, King Ahasuerus is assassinated by his own son. Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes becomes the new king of Persia. 
Some of you may recall back in July, I preached about the king promoting the kingdom and the marvelous ways in which Artaxerxes made everything possible. Give the Jews everything you can possibly think of. Let them take all the money, the gold, take them, you know, give them every right and privilege you can imagine. Why? Go with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, starting at verse 23. This is King Artaxerxes now writing to Ezra. of God. God is the one who brings about justice. God is the one who kills them, who destroys them, because they are his enemies. They're not just the enemies of Esther or Mordecai. They are God's. And God says, I will always protect my people, and I will always protect the innocent. The people in Persia under the time of Esther and Mordecai, have completely forgotten God. They've ignored They're not heroes. I read a book this past week that said Esther is one of the great heroes of the Christian faith. I'm sorry. She's not. She's far less than that. But by the grace of God, God used her. God uses 
sometimes wicked, sinful, broken people who have come out of the prison. I hope you find tremendous comfort in the sovereignty of God. And I hope you don't mind singing my favorite song most of the time. It returns to number 75 in our Trinity hymnal. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to open it. We don't have to be afraid of policemen coming in and attacking us and shutting us down as happens in so many countries in the world today. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might continue to enjoy this freedom. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious to our nation that all the enemies of you and the gospel might be put to shame and that your name might be glorified. In Christ's name.